Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and it helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's our guest speaker with this message. Uh, I am, uh, I'm glad to be here with you again. And uh, always, always good to see old friends make new friends. So, over the last 10 days or so, I decided what I was going to speak on, and I began to work on the topic, and I was going to meld two different topics together this morning, the nine hidden dangers in the occult or nine forbidden practices, and also I was going to give you an update on Disney. Now, last night at 2 a.m., when I finally turned the computer off, everything was fine. When I came in this morning, PowerPoint won't fire up on my computer. Half of my slides this morning, at least half of them, have little movies attached to them. That makes it even harder to transfer it over to another computer. So I'm stuck. But uh, I do have plan B. Is that okay? And uh, I'll just have to save uh, the message. And I, I mean, I worked on I don't know how many hours I worked on this to get all the little bells and whistles correct in the, in the presentation. But... Um, that's the way life is. And naturally, everything worked fine. I don't remember PowerPoint ever blowing up on me anywhere. And I walk in to Rock Harbor, turn my computer on, and lo and behold. Does that sound familiar? Do other people have that trouble? Brandon was able to use video this morning. Why can't I? Anyway, uh, I am glad to be here, even if it is uh, doing something different, something I wasn't planning on. But I hope this will... Uh, will be an encouragement to you. And this is something I do often, but usually it has some visuals to it too. And we won't see any of those this morning. But um, you'll just have to wing it, like the old days. Like, I don't know how the Apostle Paul made it without videos. How did he do it without PowerPoint? But he did. And so we'll, we'll try to do the same thing. I'm curious as I begin, how many of you were born and raised, your memories go back to when you were a little boy, a little girl, and you went to church? How many of you were going to church as a child? Okay. I was too. Uh, I went to uh, St. Paul's Methodist Church in downtown Parkersburg, West Virginia. My grandparents sent me there faithfully, and that was back when the Methodist Church, as far as I know it, looking back in history, they were still preaching the gospel in the 1950s. And so uh, as I was going to church, I was hearing about all the stories of the Old Testament and New Testament, and I was... Um, uh, in the kids' plays, and the kids' choir, and I went to summer camp and all those kind of things that we do. But uh, if you would have asked me in those days if I was a Christian, I would have said yes because I, I really didn't know any better. I didn't know what it meant. I, I went to church. I was baptized when I was two years of age, against my will, by the way, may I say. And uh, I've been baptized since then after I was saved, which is the way you do it. Not, you get the cart before the horse, you get baptized before you're saved. But um, uh, I've been baptized since then, and uh, I was baptized against my will, like I said. But I did all the things that a, uh, somebody going to church would do, and I said I was, was a Christian. I would have said that if somebody asked me the question, but I really didn't know what that meant. And even though I went to Sunday school faithfully and I was in all of the Christian activities, I don't ever remember anybody challenging me about my faith or giving me a reason to, to say yes to Jesus and to accept him into my heart as Savior and Lord. So uh, it was a kind of a Christian example that I was living. My grandparents, like I said, were faithful in taking me to church. They, they raised me. Um, 
My mom uh, lived with us. My dad and my mom divorced when I was about a year of age. And so I didn't, uh, I didn't have the classic family. My grandfather became a father figure. My grandmother became a mother to me. My, my mom was more like my sister. She, was, uh, she had rheumatoid arthritis in both hips, and I never saw my mother walk up one step. She could not have made it up that one step right there by herself. Never saw that happen in my, in my life with her. So uh, you kind of get the picture that my grandparents were important to me, and I'm grateful for all they did for me grateful for all of the, um, uh, the things that they did, the, the way they treated me, the way they took care of me, and so on. But um, I wouldn't call our home a Christian home. Now, it was kind of a Christian home. Uh, you know, I never saw the, the Bible opened and read. It was, there was Bibles around our house, but I never saw one opened up and read. And my grandparents did, did as good as they could. They did the best they could uh, at, at their point of experience. And so... Uh, I'm grateful for that, and I don't ever want to come off in any way except being grateful for that. Uh, thankfully, I got to meet my dad and got to spend a lot of time with him, and he and I developed a terrific relationship later in life. I sought him out, and he was wide open to that relationship. And, you know, that's pretty weird, too. Uh, that's not the way that always works out. If, um, uh, if the parents divorce very early sometimes, one or maybe even both parents are are completely away from the situation with their, with their offspring. But I'm grateful for the opportunity I have with my dad and my mom. But I went through life the first few years, you know, doing all those Christian things. And then when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I began to beg my grandmother for a guitar. I think I did that because I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Some of you who just laugh know exactly what I'm talking about, and I know how old you are. But I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I wanted to play music. I wanted to be a musician. And uh, I didn't really understand what it was like to build a career and so on. Uh, I wasn't challenged by, uh, about any of that, that kind of stuff. Uh, in high school, my counselors didn't challenge me. If, if my high school counselors would have challenged me about what I really wanted to do in life, well, I would have probably said I'm going to play music the rest of my life, but I really didn't understand what that would mean and where that would lead. But if they would have challenged me, uh, I probably would have ended up as uh, um, somebody that, that looked into antiquity. I, I love archaeology. I love that kind of thing. And that's probably the direction I would have gone in life, but it didn't, didn't happen. Uh, when I was 11 years of age, I, I first made money playing in a band when I was 11 years of age, to give you an idea. So I was very early on playing, um, begged my grandmother for the guitar. She bought me the guitar. She got me guitar lessons. And uh, the guitar teacher, had, he kind of had a crush on my mother, so he got himself invited to dinner. And I'm probably about 12 at this point. And uh, at dinner, though I don't remember the instance, my mom told me and my grandmother has told me the same story, that evidently he asked where else I was taking lessons. And of course, they looked at me and I wasn't taking lessons anywhere else. I was learning scales and, and that kind of thing uh, in lessons from him. But he says, how is it this boy comes in and shows me the new chords he's learned on the guitar this week? He wasn't teaching me any chords. A chord is at least three notes put together into a musical pattern, and you strum it all together usually. And um, I, I, I wasn't being taught that anywhere else. I was learning it from the records. And uh, I know some of you... Probably most of you understand what a record is. I'm, usually I show a picture right here of a record, you know, and a turntable. But uh, 
Uh, some of our young people have never seen one, so I'd show that picture. It's kind of educational, you know, when I do that. So I was learning by the records, a little 45 revolutions per minute, 45 RPM records, seven inches across, one song on each side. You know, they put a hit on one side of a record, and they put a real uh, not so good of a song on the other side, you know, because they don't want a double-sided hit. That was something I learned in the industry as I went on. But I was learning from the records. I was sitting there learning to play by ear, and I didn't understand that. I thought most people could do that. I thought that's just the way you did it, but it wasn't. And I uh, learned, learned pretty quickly that because I could, I could find in my mind what middle C sounded like, uh, I could learn then the songs from the records and teach myself. And as time went on, I, I begged my grandmother to buy me a set of drums, which she did. And God bless my grandparents. They put up with so much noise in their house, I'm telling you. They did. They put up lots of noise for me, for my sake. And uh, I began to play, um, play drums. And then I was still playing guitar, of course. But uh, we got a, a better drummer, and the guitar player I was teaching how to play guitar, he switched to bass, and we had a little trio, and it was called the Echoes, and we actually went out and made money and played dances. A local disc jockey uh, heard about us and asked us to come in and record a song in the recording studio that was attached to the, to the radio station. And the radio station went off at dusk every night, so he had plenty of time when it got dark outside to be able to record us. And... He recorded a song we played, and then they started playing that on radio. Now, I want you to understand what that meant to a kid in junior high school. All of a sudden, my song was being played on the radio. I'm in a band. Now, we're not the best band in the area. We're not the best local band, but we're certainly the youngest band. And uh, that meant a lot because that meant the girls were all going to like it. And so that's, that's kind of what was going on in my mind. You know, I realized pretty quickly that you didn't have to be a really great musician as long as you were a musician and somebody was going to like you. And so that's what life was like. Before long, we had four or five, maybe six pieces playing in the band together. I became an older teenager and kept playing, and that's all I did. My other friends... Uh, for them to be able to make the kind of money I was making from the very beginning, they had to go out and shovel snow in the winter or, or uh, cut grass in the summertime. I remember that, that DJ that brought us in, that uh, recorded us, he was holding dances every Saturday night at a local team, uh, community center, it was, and, and uh, invited us to play. And at the end of that uh, three-hour dance, we played everything we knew at least twice. We didn't have very many songs. But uh, at the end of that, th that three-hour dance, he handed us each a nice, crisp $10 bill. My other friends had to work for a month to get that. Ten bucks meant something different than it does today, amen? You know, it was a whole different world back then. Inflation hadn't taken away the value of our money. But um, as time went on, we learned more songs. It got better musicians in the band. I kept playing all through junior high and high school. In fact, I was out traveling before I could even drive a car. We had a, a chaperone that went with us wherever we went and drove our, drove our equipment around from place to place. So that's what was going on in my life early on. And that's really all I wanted to do. I wanted to make it in the music business, and I was going to make it no matter what else happened. That's, that was my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed what I did. I didn't, there was nothing else that really excited me. I wasn't big enough to play football or tall enough to play basketball or fast enough to play baseball. So I did that. I did all those things, but not to the sufficiency of being able to do them successfully. So when I was 17, found out that my girlfriend was pregnant. 
things were coming apart at the seams. It was decided that uh, my mom and I would move together, and we want, she wanted to move anyway, and I needed a fresh start. It was decided I wasn't going to have anything to do with the baby. And so I went to, moved to Seattle, Washington. Now, Seattle meant rock stardom in those days. At three different times during the last 50 years, Seattle has been a hotbed of local musicians who were writing songs and getting recording contracts. And so again, all, that's all I had in my mind. In fact, when I was a senior in high school, I had four music classes and health class. That's all I had. It's not exactly the academic classes, you know, that I had, but four music classes and health. And I, I really didn't care much about school because I was going to play music the rest of my life and it didn't matter. That's all I was going to do. When I got out of school, I met some people and began to record and began to play. And I decided pretty quickly that going out and trying to play and make a living that way wasn't going to work very well. And I knew if I was ever going to get somewhere, I would take the original songs I've been writing and take them in the recording studio and be able to record them. So early on, I, I had an affinity for wanting to record, and, and I enjoyed doing that. That's, that was really what was going to do it for us. It was a vehicle that would get us somewhere. Uh, along the way, I helped build three recording studios. Uh, the first two I did most of the construction on. The last one, I was a manager in the studio. And that was by far the best recording studio that, that we had. And I was a pretty good engineer. That was, that, in my opinion, that was the forte of my, my musical career, if you want to call it that. I met people along the way who, had, who went on to win Grammy Awards. In fact, I did the, the tape that got Queensryche, the famous rock group, their record deal. Uh, I recorded Kenny G on about 50 different occasions before any, anybody knew who he was. And he's probably known in our era as the greatest sax musician, uh, saxophone of, of uh, anybody out there. And so I was on a par, on, on scale, with playing with people who were making it in the music business. And oh yeah, by this time, I'd become a hopeless drug addict. And when I say hopeless, I was taking all kinds of drugs. You know, all my heroes were doing that. The people I was looking up to, the musicians, uh, the, the producers and others, you would read about them, you would hear about them. And uh, I, I began, I, I built this little recording business, if you will, and I would go out and look for songwriters or groups or preferably both together. And then I'd offer them a, a, a short-term contract where we'd record two or three songs. And then I would try to sell the songs or the band or both uh, to a record company. And I oftentimes would go to L.A. and sit in those corner suite offices and try to get appointments with, with particular people who would help us to, to be able to accomplish our mission. But I remember doing all that kind of stuff and... Throughout that whole thing, if you'd asked me, am I a Christian, I would have said yes, because I didn't know any better, because I was baptized when I was a little kid, because I went to church as a child. I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, and what does that have to do with it? That's kind of the way my life went. I wasn't reading the Bible. I've carried a Bible around for a long time, kind of like a, a good luck charm or a rabbit's foot, you know, people would carry around. By the way, if you're carrying around a rabbit's foot for good luck, it wasn't lucky for the rabbit. So, but I, I, that's the way I viewed it. I didn't open the Bible to read it to find out what was in there, but uh, that's just the way life was. That's, that's the stuff I did. And I, I, I did a lot of it out of ignorance, not knowing any better. So at one point, I was spending about $1,000 a week on my cocaine addiction. Now, in the 1970s, that was a lot of money. 
way more money than it sounds to be today. $1,000 is a lot of money today, but nothing like it was back in the 70s. I, I thought that was the key for me. In fact, I got to the place where I felt like I couldn't run or play in a recording uh, situation without having dope. You know, it was just, I was psychologically and then became physically addicted at the same time. Now, I've left out where I met my wife. I was playing in a little local bar band just to kind of keep calluses on my fingertips as a guitar player and, uh, you know, have a few beers. And I became an alcoholic in that situation. I played in the same bar six nights a week for 18 months. And uh, that's, that's what happens when they give the band free beer. You become an alcoholic in the process. Um, I, I call myself an alcoholic because I was so dependent on the drugs and all the genre around me to be able to produce and record and write music. And yet I've heard recordings of me when I was perfectly straight and I'm probably better that way than I was ever when I was taking something to, to aid my my psychological being. That's the way I felt about myself. That I, I needed to bring myself up psychologically. But my wife and I met each other. We knew each other for about three weeks and we eloped to Lake Tahoe and got married. In fact, we got married at the Love Chapel at Lake Tahoe. Come to find out, my brother-in-law and his wife got married there by the same guy about 10 years later. <laughs> it was Reverend R.L. Love, and I'm sure that was his last name. Yeah, positive it was. So um, nobody told me you had to give up all your girlfriends once you get married. Hmm. That didn't come into my mind because, hey, I'm in the band. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You know, I'm going to make it in the music business and nobody's going to stop me. So Melanie and I had troubles all along the way. I mean, our, our marriage started out in the, on the wrong foot. It's amazing to me. And it's wonderful also that uh, last month I passed my 44th year of being married to her. And so I'm grateful for that. She's the most precious and wonderful thing in my life and... And uh, really, it's, she's, she's a lot of the reason that I live today. In fact, I, I believe I'd be dead if it hadn't been her, for her and her influence in my life. So we went to see a marriage counselor in the process of all this. And uh, that poor marriage counselor had more problems than we did. It was like I wanted to turn the table around and go, can we help you? Because this person really, really didn't have it figured out. But both of us were into drugs. Both of us were into music. She was, she'd been studying witchcraft before we got married, before we met each other. And I'd been a new ager for many years at that point. I was throwing the arrow sticks of the I Ching and following kind of the Eastern mystic uh, philosophies at that point in time. Nobody was expressing to us a need to get saved. In fact, in all the recording studios and all the concerts and all the travel and all the hotels and all the clubs and all that time, I don't ever remember anybody ever witnessing Jesus Christ to me, which is an indictment really on, on the church that I never met anybody who challenged me about my lifestyle. Um, nobody even bothered to tell me that I was going to go to hell. Uh, a lot of people told me to go there, but uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't recognize that, that uh, I was lost, even though I had everything that all of my friends around me wanted. At one point, I had another engineer working full-time for me, taking all the, the recording jobs that I really didn't want to do. I could be home asleep or out partying someplace, and he's working, and I'm making money at the same time. And so I had what others would want, but I didn't recognize it. There was always something missing in my life. 
So in the middle of a huge fight one night, my wife threw the yellow, yellow pages at me and hit me in the back of the head. Now, they're about that thick. Got my attention right away. And if you, uh, some of you have met my wife. Some of you all went to Israel. We went to Israel together back in 2018. And you've met her, and you can hardly imagine her swearing like a truck driver, but she's swearing at me, and she threw the yellow pages at me, and, and uh, she said, you want to get your marriage straightened out? You figure it out. Now, she didn't throw the yellow pages at me to have me look for a marriage counselor, but that's exactly what I did. I opened them up to religious counselors, and I put my finger down on the page, and I called the number the next morning where my finger landed. It was a man named Ted Bradshaw. And Ted answered the phone, good morning, God bless you. And I'm sure I must have looked at the phone, and back in those days, you know, a lot of us talked funny. I certainly did. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I looked at the phone and went, wow, far out, God's on the phone, you know, because <laughs> I didn't know any better. So the first question that Ted asked me that morning, I said, you know, like we knew marriage counselor, man, every sentence ended in the word man, you know what I mean? So uh, like we knew a marriage counselor, man, can you help us, man? <laughs> Ted said, of course. Are you a Christian? And I went through my little checklist real quick. Of course I'm a Christian. Man, I went to, went to church as a child. I was born in America. Yeah, I'm a Christian, of course. I had no idea who Jesus was. Had no idea. So he, he saw us that very afternoon. We got in the car and went to see him. And we were in deep trouble, both of us were. Both of us were, you know, our marriage was in trouble. Our lives were in trouble in general. And he told us later on that from the things we admitted to him in that first conversation in his office, he knew there were a lot more deeper things that we weren't talking about. You know, he was doing marriage counseling in, a, in his real estate office where he's selling real estate on the side, but counseling was really what he wanted to do. He'd been a pastor previously. And so he saw us, and I remember getting in the car and thinking this is probably going to be a waste of time, but I'm going to... I'm going to see it out somehow. I'll see myself through this. And my wife and I continued on. And, you know, he kept encouraging us to get a Bible. He kept talking about leadership in the home and looking at me when he said that. And I, I didn't exactly know what that meant. I'd never read any books about it. I didn't know what he was talking about. But she went out and bought a Bible. She knew we were in trouble. She had that maternal instinct, too. She knew that our family, our two girls were in trouble. We were in trouble and we needed help. And she knew it. Man, all I wanted to do was go to the studio and get high and play music and record music. That's all I was thinking about. But she bought a Bible and she brought a Bible home. And I walked in one night and the Bible's laying there on the coffee table. And I remember thinking, that's okay, she can have a Bible, just as long as she doesn't get weird with it. She got weird with it. She began to read it. It's interesting. She began to believe it. That's weird. She's believing this, this book. Now, if you'd asked me if the Bible was God's word, I would have probably said, well, maybe. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. So she started reading the word. She started taking our girls and going to church on Sunday morning. I remember mocking her more than one occasion as she left to go to church. I remember on Tuesday nights as she would go to Bible study which was being held right up the street from our house, and it ha was, happened to be being held in the home of a guy who was the lead singer in a band that our booking agency used to book. So I knew him. 
And I, I would make fun of her and her relationship with God. I didn't know what that was, but I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, she can go to heaven if she wants to, but I'm going to Hollywood. Thank you very much. That's kind of the way I thought. So that was my philosophy about life. And so I would usually make every excuse I could not to have to go to the, to, uh, to the counseling sessions and see Ted. But uh, one day I obviously slipped because I was able to not get out of it, or not able to get out of it, and I, I went to the counseling session with her. And I was there that day when Ted, as he always did, asked, would either of you like to receive Christ today and be free? He always said that at the end of his counseling sessions with us. And of course, I would just sit there like a bump on a log, and this time I look over at her, and when my wife starts to cry, her chin quivers for a little while first. And her chin was quivering, and she began to weep. And I watched as God got a hold of her, and Ted came over and sat in front of her and took her hands and led her through what we now call and we know as the sinner's prayer. And you would think a guy that had all the troubles and all the difficulties in life that I did, see, I didn't know I had those troubles. I didn't realize where drug addiction was going to lead me. I didn't know where New Age philosophy was going to take me. But you would think a guy that had the difficulties in life that I did would have said, you know, this is a pretty good idea. I think I should do that too. No, that's not what happened. I, I watched and listened as Ted led my wife to the Lord. And as soon as I could get her out of there and get her in the car, I took out a joint, lit it up, blew smoke in her face and swore at her and told her I was never going to do that. We went home. I was so angry by the time we got home, a half hour away and driving, that I put everything I could, I could carry in a suitcase and left. I thought that's going to fix her, you know. Well, I got tired of sleeping on, on the floor in the recording studio after about five or six days. And my clothes were dirty, and I wanted a home-cooked meal. And so I called her up one night. It was one of these calls. Honey, can I come home? I really miss you and the kids. She said, yes, Eric, please come home. And I remember she said, I've been praying for you. That should have tipped me off what was coming. <laughs> and so I walk in the door of our home, and here's her Bible on the coffee table, and she's got a book by Billy Graham sitting next to it. And I walk in the, into the kitchen, and there she is, the Apostle Paul's sister is cooking dinner. When she found out that preaching at me wasn't going to change my mind and heart, and she started loving me unconditionally instead, that was way worse. It was, as the Bible calls it, hot coals being heaped onto you. So she stuck with me. Through all of the junk I put her through over the next two years, she stuck with me. Through going to the Bible studies and going to church, she stuck with me. And me staying home, me staying away. We were really close to the point of, it, it was about time to break up. That's what was happening. I knew it was going to happen. Why put, this, put ourselves through this anymore? You know, it's going to happen. One rainy cold Friday night in February of 1981, she found my car sitting outside one of my girlfriend's houses. I didn't know she knew where my girlfriends lived, but she did. And she'd been praying for me and praying that God would would get a hold of me and would break me, if nothing else. She and Ted, that night, she didn't find me in, at the house. We were out doing a drug deal. But 
She called Ted at one o'clock in the morning on that Friday night in February of 81. And they prayed a simple prayer together. And later on, I found out they prayed, God, whatever it takes, get Eric. Now, before you pray that for somebody that you're concerned for, just remember, whatever it takes may not be very convenient. Whatever it takes may be ugly. Whatever it takes may be hurtful. Whatever it takes is rough. But they, play, they prayed like that for me. So two days later, after I had been on a binge of cocaine for three days and hadn't slept at all, I woke up in the Ramadi Inn at Northgate in Seattle, and I wanted to go home. And I wanted to go home to get the rest of my stuff, and I was going to leave her. That was my plan. And I pull up in front of our house on, you know, on Sunday evening, now three days later, or two and a half days later. I show up at home, and uh, I walk in the door, and I'm, I'm resolute that I'm just going to tell her I'm leaving her. It's just that simple. And I came in, and there's a book laying on the couch. And in this very tense moment between us, this book is sitting here on the couch between us. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out the exact words and motions and what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell her I'm leaving her, and then I'm going to you know, make a, a grand exit out the door. Well, this book was laying there, and I didn't know the author. I didn't know who David Wilkerson was. And the book laying there, I picked it up, and I didn't open it up to the table of contents or read about the author on the back cover. I just opened it up to page 60. And I looked down at the pages, and she had underlined a couple of words in the middle of one page. And then your eyes immediately go to those words that are underlined. She had underlined it in a ballpoint pen. I do everything in highlighter pen these days. I mean, I'm, some of my books are three or four colors, you know, because I want to remember things in the books I read. But on page 60 of this book, right where I opened it up, it said, God hates divorce. And she'd underlined those words. See, I knew there was a God. I heard about him in, in that Sunday school in West Virginia when I was a kid. I knew there was a God. I saw him in the eyes of my counselor, Ted. And I knew there was a God because I watched him change my wife's life. And she went from death to life, eternal life. God hates divorce in the middle of the page. And she says she didn't actually see it happen, but she pretty quickly knew it happened because she felt me leave the couch as I fell onto the floor with the book crumpled up underneath me and I began to cry. At that point in time, I don't think she'd ever seen me cry before. Today, I kind of cry at the drop of a hat, you know, don't test me. <laughs> but that book was crumpled up underneath me, and she didn't know what was going on. I just, she said, I began to moan. She didn't know what to make of it. She thought I was having a nervous breakdown. She didn't know. She really didn't. But she came down off that couch, and she put her arms around me, and she began to hug me. And I look back at that scene, though I didn't see it with my eyes. I was in it instead I, I look at that and think about that was Jesus hugging the adulterous drug addict through his wife. That's what that was. And I began to say, Melanie, forgive me. And I was really emotional in the process of it. Melanie, forgive me. See, I'd always been sorry when she caught me. But I was only sorry I got caught. I wasn't really sorry for what I'd done. But this time, like, everything was out in the open. I, I was genuinely remorseful for what I'd done. 
And I, I kept saying, Melanie, forgive me. And she kept holding me while I cried. And then I started saying, God, forgive me. And she said, I said it over and over and over. Now, I wasn't crying out to the God of Confucius or the God of Buddha or the God of Muhammad. No, I was crying out to the God who I'd seen in, in that marriage counselor and then watching my wife change, who I'd heard about in that Sunday school class in West Virginia. That's who I was crying out to. And I believe the very first time I said, God, forgive me, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life and I was born again. Now, I know that's not what we think when we pray the sinner's, sinner's Prayer today, which is the Americanized version of, of leading somebody to Christ. But I believe that's what happened because I was already recognizing I couldn't do it alone and I needed his help. And I knew who did it. I knew that Jesus Christ had done it. Now, it's now Sunday night, and Melanie had, had talked to our counselor, Ted, on, um, on Friday night about uh, midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And so as soon as the sun came up, the, the rain was gone, the, the storm had moved out, and it was a beautiful sunny day. And I called Ted on the phone. I said, Ted, can I come in and see you? Can we come in and see you? And he said, Eric, where's Melanie? I said, she's right here. He said, is she all right? Because all he knew was what she told him on Friday night and how despondent she was over what I'd been doing. And so Melanie had to drive because I'd done about a quarter ounce of cocaine over the weekend and I was tremoring. And I, I didn't think I was safe to drive and I'd been drinking and I hadn't slept in three days. I, I guess I wasn't safe to drive. And so she drove and I remember as we pulled up across the street from his office on 65th Street in North in Seattle. I remember the scene. I can see him. He's in a white shirt and a dark tie. Came out, stood on the sidewalk. When he saw us pull up, he came outside like this, you know, just smiling, you know. And I got out of the car and I made a beeline for him. And I did something I'd never done in my life that I remember as an adult. I had never hugged a man, but I fell into his arms and began to weep. He knew what had happened to me. He knew what they'd prayed for, for about a year and a half at that point, had finally happened. He knew that God had gotten through that thick veneer, that thick skull of mine of what I was doing, that God had moved in. And so he gets us inside, and we sit down at his desk, and I begin to say, Ted, I've been doing this, and I've been doing that, and I begin to confess things. He said, I know, Eric. She'd been telling him everything, so he knew it already, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so, but I, had, I needed to get it off my chest. And I, I just was telling him, you know, how sorry I was for what I'd done and the way I've acted. And I, he knew I'd never done that before. I'd never, ever had that kind of an of a emotional response to anything. And so, after a few minutes, he asked me if he could pray for me. Well, I wasn't going to say no now. And so... He uh, comes over and st stood behind me and put his hands on my shoulders to begin to pray for me. I didn't hear a voice or see a vision or hear other voices or anything like that. It wasn't anything odd or weird. But as he prayed for me, I had this, this sensation that a big weight was coming off of me. And you've heard people talk about this too. When God gets a hold of you, it's almost like warm honey dripping on you. I had those kind of experiences and sitting there in that, that chair when he's praying for me and I didn't know what to make of it. I just knew that God was doing something 
And if this was God doing something, I wanted more of it. I wanted whatever God wanted to do. And so Ted led me through the sinner's prayer to make sure that I understood what it meant to be a Christian and be saved. And I don't know how long we sat there, but we made another appointment. I saw him every day or talked to him on the phone. One of the two, about every other day I'd go see him, and then we'd talk the, next, the other days on the phone. But uh, that went on for a week or 10 days where he wanted to make sure I was okay. He knew I had a heavy drug addiction. He knew I'd probably need help. And uh, we got in the car. Uh, we were across the street from the office. We sat in the car. And I don't know how long we sat there in the front seat of the car. But I, I know while we were sitting there, I realized I wasn't shaking anymore. And it never came back. The next day he called and he said, I've got it set up for you, you to go uh, to drug rehab. And uh, I said, Ted, I want to be with my family. I want to be with Melanie. I want to stay here. About the third or fourth day, he told me later, he said, I was concerned that you were seeing your dealer again and you were just putting on a front that you were get using again. But I wasn't. And what was going on in our lives was the, that day, as we went home from his office, we stopped at a Christian bookstore, and I went in and bought a Bible. I bought a King James Version, and that's what I've, I've preached from ever since. So I, I went home, I began to read the Bible. I didn't understand everything as I read it, but something was different. I was driven to read it, driven to learn about it. And that's what went on in my life from month after month, year after year, ever since then to right now. That's what's happened. So he helped us through that. But the biggest miracle of all, bigger than me being delivered from drugs, probably on the same scale of God saving our marriage, was the fact that I was addic addicted to a dream and that, that addiction went away. When I realized that that wasn't God's dream for me to be some famous musician, if I could have ever gotten that far, it wouldn't have gotten me anything except money and probably a lot of trouble. And you think you want to get somewhere in the music business, and a person who has their head screwed on straight, it's probably going to be okay for them. But for me, I needed to make sure that my life was in order. And, and I knew the only way I could do that is if I stayed away from the recording studio. And about a year after that, I walked away from the studio not knowing if I could feed my family or how I'd do it because all I'd ever done in my life was play music. That's the only way I'd ever made money. But Melanie was with me all the way. And she knew that, that she was going to support me to be free of all this stuff. And we, we, we could worry about the money somehow as we went along. My father-in-law only lived about a mile from us. He fed us four or five nights a week and took care of us during those days. And as things progressed and things happened, and I went to work actually as a paid phone counselor in Seattle, you know, at a Christian counseling center. I, I hadn't even read the whole Bible yet, but I had zeal. I had drive. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people who'd been New Agers. I wanted to help people who, who had been in my shoes, been where I was. And God used that time. And it, it made me learn quickly what, uh, what God wanted me to know. So God has a way of getting a hold of us. And if you right now know somebody in your life, if you know somebody, maybe it's a, a husband or a son or a daughter or a wife, somebody in your life or a friend that, that you know, you think they're, they're, they're untouchable before God. No, God can get through to anybody he wants to get through to. He can touch anybody and save anybody sovereignly in his own time. He is sovereign above all things. We can't plan it out 
but God has already mapped out. He knows exactly what steps are going to be taken to get us in position or them in a position to be saved. Maybe you've got a son or a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, somebody in your life that is living far from God. You've been praying for them and you're about ready to give up. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. If God can save me, he can save anybody. You know, when I read in the Bible that the Apostle Paul called himself the worst of sinners, I thought, God, did you not know about me? (laughs) Didn't you know I was coming along? But, of course, he did. The Apostle Paul called himself the worst of sinners, and I thought I was right there with him. But, you know, God can turn those things into, you know, beauty for ashes is the way it's put in Scripture. He can make a difference in people's lives in a way that we can't even imagine. He can save those who we probably believe are beyond being touched. But he has a way to do it, and he can do it. Don't give up on them. Maybe you're sitting here right now, and you say, well, all that sounds fine, and here I am in church today, but I know things aren't really right between me and God. If you have any doubt about where you're at with God, any doubt about whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or any doubt about whether you're born again, however you want to say it, if you have any doubts at all, you can settle that right here and right now. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that Christ raised from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say then as soon as you clean up your life, you can get saved. No, it says you will be saved. You've got to start where you're at, and you can start where you're at with Jesus. I imagine those who came to an 8 o'clock service in the morning, you probably already know exactly what's going on. You know that you're saved. You know you're on the way to heaven. You know that someday you'll stand before God and you're going to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But if you're not sure, if you're not positive, that can be terrorizing. And it can also, it can basically paralyze you from being able to do what God has called you to do in your life. And we've all been called, every one of us, to be evangelists and witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 tells us that we are called to go into all the world, wherever that is to us, and preach the gospel and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that's up to us. It's just not up to Pastor Brandon as he travels or online where they may do counseling here or here at the church at an altar. It's just not, just not that. It's for every one of us to be able to help others to know there is a God and that we will be accountable for what we've done. And Jesus will wipe away our sins if we're willing to surrender to him. Now, that's a big ask for a lot of people. Because just like me, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to make it in the music business, whatever that meant. I was going to make it. Nobody was going to stop me. But God has a way to do this. He has a way to get through to everybody. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads, and I want you to examine your own heart. Just examine your heart. And I'll be happy to talk to and to pray with anybody who needs prayer afterward, but I want you just to examine your heart and just ask yourself, do I know that I am saved? Do I know that I am a Christian? Based on what the Scripture says in in, um, John chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 10, do I know that I have surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? If you couldn't answer yes to that, if you couldn't answer absolutely I know that I'm saved, then you need to do something about it even right now. This is the safest place in Bakersfield right now. 
the safest place that you can come to Jesus Christ. Now, by that I mean by simply saying, I know that I'm a sinner, God, and I need your help. I can't do it alone. And I now ask Jesus to become my Lord and Savior and to take control in my life. Now, if that's you, you need to tell somebody then. You need to talk to somebody. Maybe it's the person next to you. Maybe it's somebody you don't know. Maybe it's me, if that's you. But you need to make sure that you tell somebody what's happened in your life and what you've done. It was the best thing I ever did. I just had, I wish I hadn't waited till I was, until I was almost 30 years of age to do it. I wish I'd have done it a lot earlier. It would have saved me a lot of headache and a lot of heartache. And yeah, I wouldn't have a testimony like this, but believe me, the person who gets saved when they're three years of age, that person is going to have a testimony for Jesus Christ just the same as what you've heard me give. I don't think what I have is a good testimony, by the way. I think it's a testimony of a hard-headed, hard-hearted person that God gave another chance to, and another chance to, and a second chance, and a third, and a fifth, and an eighth, and a tenth chance to. That God gave me chances over and over, and I finally surrendered. So if you know you're saved this morning, pray for those around you. There's probably somebody here in the room that isn't sure, but you can be sure today. Not based on my good works, not based on all the nice things I've done or the bad things I haven't done, only based solely on the forgiveness and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ do I know that I'm saved. And you can know it too. Father, touch each one of us here. Help us who are saved be praying for our loved ones and our friends and our relatives, those who are not saved. Help us to pray for them, to see their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, to see their lives changed by the power of the gospel. Forgive us, God, for the things we've done and the things we haven't done when you've spoken to our hearts and spoken to us clearly from your word about what we're to do. Help us, Lord, and break us free from the apathy that grips the church across America today. Father, I pray, Father, you'll touch each one of us in this room right where we're at with exactly what we need. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know who's coming, but I'm finished. (laughs) I'll be back there at my book table. I brought in a number of things that does have all of my PowerPoint in it, by the way. And... uh, I hope you got exactly what God wanted you to get out of what I give you this morning. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.